Morning. How are y'all doing? Yesterday we had... Oh, I love you guys too. <laughs> Yesterday we had our premier girls event called Daughters of the King. And the theme was Refiner's Fire. A blacksmith, Colin from Homer Christian, came and did a demonstration for all of the girls about how a railroad spike, rusty, gnarly, nasty railroad spike, could be heated and hammered into a knife. And afterwards, I was totally taken by that. I'm, I'm very much like a knife and fire, you know, testosterone kind of guy. And uh, he showed me a picture of what it was going to become. And I was just so astounded. So I'm asking questions. And how does this work? And how does that work? And what's that? And, and I was having a blast. And I learned two things about blacksmithing, specifically when it comes to iron. He would put this railroad spike in and it would glow really orange. And when he'd take it out, there would be spots on the orange. And as he hammered it, those spots would fall off and crumble into like black dust. And all of that was the slag or the dross, as the Bible would call it. It's all the impurities, it's the junk, it's the rust, it's everything that's not supposed to be there, everything that's not pure iron. And so after this hammering and the stretching and flattening it out process, it it's now remains to be just the iron, but it's still that dark iron color. After that, he would take a grinder and he would grind at it until a beautiful silver, silver shine would come out of it and he would sharpen it into a knife. God does the same thing with us. We're talking about the Apostles' Creed and about how God is the God who will judge the living and the dead. And there are two aspects of this. There is the judgment where God will separate what is of him and what is not of him. But further, he will take those who belong to him and they will also endure a judgment, a grinding of purification until we shine and reflect him. Heavenly Father, anoint our hearts this morning. Open my mouth with only what is your words. Please, Lord, burn away anything that might be of me. Lord, I pray that our worship will continue, that we will move from music to listening, to absorbing, to inwardly digesting your word this morning. Please, Lord, lead and take this. Prepare hearts for the seed of your word. And I pray that you are rebuking the enemy right now from trying to steal the seed that is planted. Remove every barrier in us. Open our minds, our eyes. Thank you, Lord, for what you're doing in this place. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus tells a parable about a farmer who goes out and he plants good seed throughout his soil. But in the middle of the night, a bad guy comes and plants weeds in and among the seed. And the servant comes to him and says, what do we do? Should we go in and try to rip all the weeds out? And the farmer responds this way, Matthew 13, verse 29. But he said, no, lest gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the time of the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned. But gather the wheat into my barn. This is probably referring to a ryegrass called darnel. And in its infancy, as sprouts, it looks just like wheat. 
So that one, it's hard to differentiate between the two. But also, planted together, their roots would tangle. So that if they were to try to go in and figure out what it was, they would rip out the wrong stuff, or they might even rip out the good stuff with the weeds since their roots were tangled. Uprooting the harvest would risk it. But we are living in this season. See, they they may look the same in infancy, but as they grow, they will distinguish themselves. And we are in a season right now where both are planted side by side. We're in a world side by side. And we're awaiting this future time to come that there will be a division made. And so the disciples, they're all really confused. And they come to Jesus and say, Jesus, explain this to us. And I'll read this to you. And then we'll show you on verse 41 up on the screen when we get there. He left the crowd and he went into the house. And the disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. He answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man, Jesus himself, The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. Verse 41, the Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out his kingdom all the causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. But that place will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. If you have ears, pay attention. This parable limits mankind to two categories, sons of God and sons of the evil one. There's a period of time and we're in it, of waiting. And at the harvest, judgment will be clear and decisive There is no gray area with God. There is no no validating, validating our own mistakes. There is his holiness and what is not his holiness. We live in a world that loves gray. A world where gray is the popular art of rationalizing our selfishness. Before God's justice, there is no gray. And those who are sons of the enemy have a destination of fire. And those who are son of God shine like the sun. This is a beautiful reference to Malachi where God describes his coming Messiah, Jesus, with two different titles. One, he is the refiner who refines and purifies his people and burns away those who are not. But secondly, he is the sun, S-U-N, like the shiny thing, of righteousness. And according to this parable, his people will reflect his glory. How beautiful is that? Last night we learned that a silversmith would know that the silver was purified when he had scraped off the dross until he could see his image in the silver. How beautiful is that, that we reflect the image of God. We will shine like the sun. So let's read the creed together this morning. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived from the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, who suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. On the third day, rose again from the dead, ascended into heaven, sits at the right hand of the Father, whence he will come to judge the living and the dead. And in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the remission of sins, the resurrection of the flesh, and the life everlasting. You'll notice that up until this point, 
All of it is in past tense. Then present tense is he is presently sitting at the right hand of the Father. But this morning we're discussing something that is future tense that we are looking towards. This is quoting 1 Peter 4, 1 through 6. And God is saying that his people no longer walk according to the flesh. They walk in the spirit, but we are among people that are walking in the flesh. Just like the parable. And he says that those who are walking in the flesh, when they see that we act differently, are going to malign, attack, injure us. And he says this in verse 5, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Verse 6 is telling us that there is hope for the spiritually dead. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that there is hope for us. He is not done yet. God's character is beautiful. It is a character of love and a character of holiness. And out of his love come his forgiveness, his kindness, his mercy and grace and patience. And out of his holiness come his justice, his righteousness, and his wrath against all that is unrighteous and unjust. This parable of the weeds reminds us that hell is very real. And that should rattle us just a little bit. God is not a detached judge. He is a holy God offended by a rebellion of wickedness called sin. And we have clothed ourselves in that sin. We have armed ourselves in the rebellion against him. God is not impartial with weighing what is holy and unholy. His judgment is profoundly personal. As God's people, if we flinch from speaking about the wrath of God, we can never describe the intense nature of his love. For us, for his people, there is peace in knowing that God is judge. We live in a world where the innocent are attacked, violated, and wounded. Where every institute of man is corrupted with wickedness. We live in a world of brokenness that is sick and twisted. I grew up with my parents being uh, youth ministers uh, in inner city work, uh, the hood of Bastard, Louisiana. And so all my friends were the kind of people that you're like, I'm crossing the street. They were all gang members and drug addicts and prostitutes. Those are the people I grew up with. Those were my friends. And there was a girl who was 12 years old, and she had a reputation for giving herself away for things as simple as candy. And I couldn't understand why she would degrade herself. Until I learned that her mother weekly was selling her to cab drivers to make money to fuel her own drug addiction. That's evil. That is wicked. And there's something inside of us that screams for justice against that, that demands, that calls out to God and says, Lord, where is your justice? Where is your righteousness? Come against this evil. We're just like those servants, like God. Can we, let's, let's go ahead and uproot it. Let's go. And God is telling us, wait. 
But that's in there. It's in us. We are foreigners in this place. We are anxious every day, looking around in darkness, knowing we don't fit. Waiting on our judge to come and reconcile. And you know what? We want more than just wickedness punished. We want to see those murdered given their lives back. We want to see those who have lost restored. And so our peace and our hope is that God will come and he will make all things right according to his justice. What is God's judgment? It is the process whereby God calls people to account for their behavior and allots their destinies accordingly. There are three expressions of God's judgment in the Bible. The first, Pastor Ben preached for me. Thank you, Pastor Ben. I get to thank you for confirming. The first is in Romans 1, where God turns sinners over to the repercussions of their own decisions and actions. Three times it says, God gave them up to their own wickedness. They will experience the consequences of their lifestyles. The second one is God's complete, brutal, and beautiful judgment at the cross of Jesus Christ, where he took his wrath and poured it out on him for us. Isaiah 53, 5. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that brought us peace. In his wounds, through his wounds, we are healed. We, like sheep of all, gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord, Yahweh, laid on him the iniquity of us all. And the third one, the one that we look to in the Apostles' Creed, is the coming day of judgment. When the believer and unbeliever will receive a final reckoning. This is the day that Jesus' parable of the weeds looks to. Who will be the judge? John 5, 22. The father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son. Jesus will be that great silversmith, dividing what is dross and slag from what is pure. What is of him and what is not of him. What is clean and what is unclean. What is wheat and what is weeds. And Jesus, on that day that Jesus sits in judgment, it will not be a good feelings day. Like Pastor Ben talked about last week, Revelations 19 paints a clear picture of who Jesus is, and he is not coming back in humility on a donkey. He is riding a war horse, coming to judge the nations. Out of his mouth comes a rod of iron, and his robe is dipped in blood. And we can translate that two ways. One, it could be the blood of those he is slaying. Verses coming up say that everyone who stands against him will lay waste on a field, and the birds will have a feast on them. Or it could be his own blood, which is also terrifying because I put it there. He is coming to judge the living and the dead. Perfect justice demands one of two verdicts. Sheep or goats, sons or daughters, sons and daughters of God or slaves to sin. Matthew 25, 31 through 34, and then I'm jumping to 41 for time's sake. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, He will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will gather all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. 
Then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. This gives us insight of the purpose and origin of hell. It, was, it is the only place apart from God's presence and it was created as punishment for Satan and his rebellion. But most importantly, it's clear that we will all stand before Jesus in judgment. No one is exempt. Revelation 20 calls it the great white throne. Other places it's called the judgment seat of Christ. And this could be two different judgment seats or it's two names for the same one. Doesn't matter. The point is that we will all stand before him. And the distinction between those whose names are found in the Lamb's book of life and those whose names are not found is terrifying. And it should stop us in our tracks. For those whose names are not found in the Lamb's book of life, 2 Thessalonians 1, 8-9 says, He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. There are three kinds of people, and I want to give warning here. Because I'm in church, so I'm probably talking predominantly to God's people. But there are three warnings that the Bible gives us for people that are self-deceived and have a very false sense of security. And before you're quick to think about somebody else, consider the first person who is self-deceived. They are the moralist. The self-righteous. They think to themselves, I've been good. I've done this, all this good stuff. God would not send me to hell. It is all going to work out for me. They are hoping God will judge them according to their own standard. Consider the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, all these things I've kept. There, there couldn't possibly be anything that I'm lacking. I've got news for you. God will judge you according to his standard. You're only deceiving yourself. The second category of people that are self-deceived with a false sense of security are the hypocrites. They put on the good person mask for their own personal gain. They're hoping God will judge them according to the lie they are living. Think about the Pharisees that Jesus like tears up He says, you say these loud prayers in front of everyone. You tell everyone when you're fasting so that you get get the fancy seats at the banquets. You get all the honor and all the recognition. They're wearing this mask of holiness for their own personal gain. I've got news for you. God is not deceived by your mask. The third group are the -the on-the-fence believers. These are someone who is trying to play the game of having one foot in being Christian-y, And one fit into, I really like and want to keep my sin. And maybe if I straddle the fence here, maybe I'll kind of sneak in. They're hoping that God will judge them according to those who are more guilty. Oh, I've got these sinners over here, but since you're on the fence, living word, Satan owns the fence. If you are riding the fence, you have already made your decision. God is not deceived. These three 
will be the ones that Jesus describes who will stand before him and say, Lord, Lord. Lord just means master. They will stand before him and say, master, master. And he will respond, I was never your master. You were your own master. Everyone who does not belong to Jesus, both the self-chosen and the self-deceived, will be judged. And their own hearts will betray them. John three eighteen through 19, whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. Light has come into the world. And how do they respond? And people loved the darkness rather than light because their works were evil. The only place of safety from God's wrath is in his presence. And now for those whose names are in the Lamb's book of life, Romans 8, 1 through 2 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Jesus' name from the law of sin and death. Isaiah 1, 18, Though your sins are like scarlet, I'll make you white as snow. But it doesn't end there. Remember? The refiner hammers and separates, but he also grinds to purify Although our sin is no longer counted against us to condemnation, those who are believers are still not exempt from judgment. Romans 14, 10b through 12 is Paul talking to Christians and including himself. We will all stand before the judgment seat of God for it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess to God. 2 Corinthians 5, 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Four things I found in the scriptures that will be taken to account when we stand before God. Romans 2.16 says, our secrets. Matthew 12.36 says, the words of our mouths, every idle word from our mouth, we will have to give an account for. Mark 4.22, the motives of our hearts. That gets me. 2 Corinthians 5.10, all of our deeds, everything that we do, all of our actions. 1 Corinthians 3 says that God had given Paul the grace to speak to them, to lay a foundation for them, for the gospel. And Jesus Christ is that foundation. And we as believers build onto that foundation. And he says this in verse 12. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones... This is not a reference to structure. If, if you have any sort of knowledge of building stuff, you don't build a building out of gold. It's like soft, it would collapse. No, he's referring to the temple, to Solomon's temple, which all of them stood in awe about. They all recognize it as this beautiful thing. And he's saying, will our lives contribute what is beautiful to this foundation? Or will they contribute wood, hay, straw? Each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it, that coming day of judgment. Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. Don't miss this. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Those things like wood and straw represent the empty and vain work that we do throughout our day. It's just for us. 
anchored in our selfishness. You see, every day that we live, yes, it's a gift from God. It is a grace and a mercy. But it's never supposed to be like, ha this is my day. It's mine. No, he gives us our day, which is an altar. And everything that we do, everything we think, every word that we speak is our offering that we lay on the altar before him. May it be a worthy offering. May it rise up to him like incense and be pleasing to him. That is our day. That is us building on a foundation with what is beautiful, what is eternally lasting. Does our day produce fruit or do we carelessly abuse his gift, his gift of grace? John MacArthur says this, we are so used to his mercy, we take it for granted and feel entitled to it. We are so used to God not killing us when we sin, we expect not to be called to judgment. But the Bible says the wages of sin is death. Every time we sin, God has the perfect right to end our lives. We get so comfortable expecting grace, we abuse it instead of valuing it for what it is. Jesus owes us nothing. Absolutely nothing. And yet we act so entitled. God does not serve us. We come before God as slaves with our nose on the ground. And that is right. And it is because of his inexplicable love that he would lift us up and call us daughters and sons. What a God is that? Who are you, God, that you would love us so much? When we consider a holy God who will come to judge the living and the dead, we cannot be flippant towards his gifts, his grace. He will separate the wheat from the weeds. He will hold us accountable. We should quake in our shoes. And you know what? That trembling before God is not only healthy, it's actually redemptive. It is a redemptive attitude towards our God. The Bible from beginning to end discusses fear of the Lord. And I took it on myself to find out what that actually meant this past week. Because I think people often undermine this phrase with saying things like, it just means that you respect them a lot. So let's take a survey of how people reacted when they encountered God. Genesis 17.3, God says to Abram, walk before me blameless. And Abraham fell on his face. Exodus 3.6, when God appeared in the burning bush, Moses hid his face. Exodus 20, I, I had to read this. This is so crazy. 18, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet, God's presence is manifesting in this loud blaring noise that they can only describe as a trumpet. And the mountain is smoking. The people were afraid and trembled and they stood afar off. And Moses said, you speak to, or they say to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen. Do not let God speak to us lest we die. You ever met someone you respect and were like, what's up? don't say anything. You may kill me. No. We have neutered the fear of the Lord to respect. Moses said to the people, I love this, listen to this. Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. Second time it says it, the people stood afar off, said it twice. They are like terrified. While Moses 
drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Isaiah 6, when confronted with the presence of God, Isaiah cries out, I am a man of unclean lips, of a people of unclean lips. Ezekiel, when he's confronted by God, he falls on his face. God tells him to stand up, but then it says that the Spirit of God had to go in him and lift him back up. You ever met someone you're respecting? You're like, hi. His nose was rubbing the ground so much so that the Spirit of God had to get him back on his feet again. Job 4. This isn't even Job speaking. This is Job's friend talking to Job. And he says, I had a vision from God. Dread came upon me and trembling, which made all my bones shake. The hair of my flesh stood up. The word that we get fear of God from, translate. I went back and translated. I wanted to find out what does this actually mean. The word, your ah, means fear, terror, and dread. Daniel 8, Daniel is speaking. He says, when I met God, I was frightened and I fell on my face. Matthew 17, at the transfiguration, the disciples fell on their faces and were terrified. Jesus is not coming back on a donkey. He's on a war horse and we better quake in our shoes because he is a consuming fire removing anything that is not of him. Fearing the Lord is far more than holy reverence. It is trembling at the infinite gap between his majesty and our unworthiness, between his power and our frailty, between his all-sufficiency and our desperation. See, God created us to fear him as a means of worship, to behold his infinite glory. But our enemy, who is the accuser, hang on to that, comes and he, he twists what God has made good to make it anti-God. Twists, the root for that is wickedness. Think of a wicker chair. He twists what is good. And God speaks of another kind of fear. Second Timothy says that God does not give the spirit of fear. Don't miss this. The spirit of fear screams at us and it's screaming, you're not worthy. Run away because you're not worthy. But fear of God is the Holy Spirit putting his hand on our heart and he's saying, you're not worthy. Press in. Get closer to the throne of grace. Run to the, to the intercessor. They gave his blood for you. Did you catch what, what happened with Moses? Exodus 20. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood afar off, while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Wow. Fearing God is a worship that draws us to his throne. Moses saw fear as holiness. Proverbs 8.13 says that the fear of the Lord makes you hate evil. Do you have a sin in your life that you can't break? It's because you do not accurately fear God. Romans 3.10 says, No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. No one does good, not even one. There is no fear of God 
before their eyes. You see, if we don't have fear of God, we'll say things like, there's no judgment. There's no calling to account. There's no need for redemption. I can get away with whatever I can rationalize. That's scary because Proverbs 1 says, if we don't fear God, he will neither answer us nor allow himself to be found by us. Oh man, that's terrifying. Fear of God brings us to repentance and it postures us face down to receive his forgiveness. A believer trembles in awe at the cross of Christ. The place where God's wrath was fully executed, but his extravagant love was shown for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We who robed ourselves in sin are now covered by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Jesus, out of his inexplicable love, chose to be our sacrifice, and he withstood the wrath that we deserved. That punishment was laid on his back. There's an old legend about ancient Russia when tribes like the Native Americans still roamed. And the tribes that had the best hunting grounds and had the most might were those with the most wise and powerful leaders. And there was one leader that stood out among them all. And he was known for his laws, his laws which were incredibly just, that had equity towards his people. And chief among all of his laws were that parents were to be respected and honored among all. Secondary among his laws were that murderers would be executed and those who stole would receive harsh punishment, ten lashes. And under his law, the tribe flourished and grew and expanded until suddenly there was a problem in the camp because there was stealing and they couldn't figure out who it was. So the ruler, in an attempt to get this thief to stop, increased the punishment to 20 lashes. But the stealing continued. 30 lashes. And the stealing continued. And he knew that if he moved it to 40 lashes, it would no longer be a punishment but an, edu- an execution. But the stealing continued and he moved it to 40 lashes. And the tribe quaked when they discovered that the thief was the leader's mother. And everyone discussed and talked. And what would he do? Would he sacrifice his love or his law? What would he be true to? And the day of judgment came. And the arena filled up to see what he would do. They, they made wagers with each other of how he would act. And he came and he took his, his seat with great pomp and circumstance. And the crowd hushed at the entry of his frail mother between two huge soldiers who led her to a post in the middle of that dirt arena and tied her to the post. The whipmaster came out and people were stunned, eyes going back and forth between the whipmaster and the leader. What would he do? Would he sacrifice his love? Would he sacrifice his law? And as the whipmaster held up his hand, the ruler called everything to a halt. And the people were stunned to see him begin to disrobe and step down from his seat. 
and cross a dirt arena until he came to the place that his mother was and he put an arm on each side of her and bent over her and commanded the executioner to continue. Out of God's justice at the cross, full, complete wrath was poured out to death for our sin. And out of his love, he took it. Both his law and his love was fully maintained and established. His character of love and holiness was never in check. He was complete, sovereign, beautiful, righteous, loving God. John three sixteen through 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Through Jesus, we are no longer wrapped in our sin. We are clothed in his righteousness. For freedom from condemnation to eternal life in his presence. Understanding that God is our judge has two challenges for us. The first is that it should move us to repentance. If you are not a believer in here, I beg you, I beg you to pick up a Bible and read one of the Gospels. Don't start at the beginning of the Bible. Start at the Gospels. Find someone that you can talk to and ask questions of. Come and talk to one of the amazing pastors that we have here at Living Word Church. Pursue and find out about God's love. I beg you, please, don't stand before God without belonging to him first. Be moved to repentance by fear from a God who will judge the living and the dead. And secondly, for God's people that are in here, may we come to repentance daily. May we quake in our shoes before an awesome God who loves us. May we move forward. May we run to his lap and ask for forgiveness again from the one who loves us most. And the second challenge it gives us is that we should live faithfully. Because every day is a gift. It's an altar and everything that we do, say, and think is placed on this altar. May we be faithful because our God is a judge of the living and the dead. And we will give an account. Heavenly Father, who is like you? Overflowing with love and holiness. The heavens are your throne. The earth is your footstool. Move us to a fear of the Lord so that we would not sin, that we would honor you, that our offerings would be worthy before you. Thank you, God, that you stepped down from your throne. Lord, we come before you on our face, wishing there was a dent in the floor so we can get flatter than the plain of the ground. And you step down from your throne. You cross the dirt and you lift us up before you out of your great loving kindness. Thank you, Jesus, for your gift of grace. May we honor you with our whole hearts. Lord, I pray that you will move us to repentance and to faithfulness this morning, beyond this morning and every day after. For you and to you is all the grace, all the honor and the glory forever and ever. Amen. I love you, living word. Go and be faithful to our king. I love you guys.